How do you successfully create a new B2B market category? This is the question that many founders ask themselves, but it's a very niche topic and there's just not a lot of content out there from people who've truly taken a shot at creating a new market category. So that's why we've created this show. So at G2, we have over 2,100 different software categories now. As I mentioned, when we started 10 years ago, we only had one, which was CRM software. What we're doing at Timescale is we're redefining the database category. Montecarlo is pioneering a category called data observability. The subcategory interview intelligence is new. We are the leader. There's a lot of category creators that are no longer with us. Uh, they're in the, the great category graveyard somewhere. In each episode, we'll learn the backstory behind the B2B founders' category creation efforts. We'll learn what worked, what didn't, and tactical insights for how you can build a winning category strategy. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now, let's jump in to today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Yuri Marshan, CEO and co-founder of Overwolf, an in-game creation platform that's raised over $150 million in funding. Yuri, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks uh, for having me. Great to be here. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background and really your personal journey of what you were doing before you founded Overwolf? So basically, I started playing games at a young age. That was a very big part of my childhood growing up. Played pretty much everything on PC. I think Dune 2 was uh, my first real addiction. But from that point on, I played pretty much every game that was out there. When I was 18, I joined the Air Force, spent a few years there in Israel. Everyone needs to... Uh, do military service, and that was my choice. And then when I finished that at the age of around about 25 and a half, I started my entrepreneurial journey. As I was studying for the Israeli SAT, the call psychometric test, I opened a first like, e-learning company with uh, two friends from the army. After about a year, I started studying computer science and uh, have done this company while studying computer science. Haven't really reached scale or any significant successes, but we have shipped the product and we had some sales, but ended up shutting it down after graduation and opening Overwolf and have been doing Overwolf ever since. Now, I'm sure from your time in the military, you learned a lot of valuable life lessons. If you had to choose maybe one or two, what would those lessons be? Very good question. I mean, first off, the confidence that if you're very thoughtful, you can pretty much achieve everything. I was very fortunate to be a part of some really big things that I would not have imagined even possible. And I think this really builds your confidence that almost everything is achievable with the right mindset and then resources and planning, of course, commitment. But I would think that this is one thing. And secondly, there is such a huge debrief culture in the early Air Force. And I think that really kind of, it's a way of living for me right now and something that we try to bring into Overwolf as well and everything else we do. So continuous improvement. And for those who aren't familiar with Overwolf, can you maybe just provide a a high-level overview of what the company does? Sure. So for creators that want to build content around existing games, like apps or mods, we give them everything they need from a technical perspective, from a marketing perspective, from a monetization perspective, to succeed and make a living building game content. We call these creators in-game creators, and we're going to get to that later, I guess. But basically, we're a tools and services company, and our main customer is the in-game creator. And for in-game creators, we're providing everything from A to Z. 
Let's start with the definition then of in-game creation and then what it means to be an in-game creator. So can you just talk us through the definition? Sure. So I think content around existing games basically has existed for the past four decades. So 1983, we had Castle Smurfenstein as a mod for Castle Wolfenstein, if you remember that game, and basically replaced the soldiers with uh, Smurfs and through that created a different experience. So it's basically a developer that came to an existing game and created a whole different experience from that game. That's called modding. But there are actually gaming websites and there are gaming apps. And sometimes there are folks who kind of build their own private servers and then invite friends to play. And some game studios have really turned that into like a live ops service and they operate at scale and they monetize really nicely. So we tried to think really hard about what is the common ground between modders, the way we know them, and private server owners, app developers, and website owners. And we realized that at the end of the day, they all create game content, but they're not really game developers. So like, we tried to figure out what would be the category that would capture all of these different verticals. And then we thought that calling it in-game creation is you know, probably a good idea. So I don't know if it's a good idea, but this is what we thought back then. What was the journey like to get to that point to have these types of definitions and being able to actually, you know, define the category, articulate the category story? What did you have to do behind the scenes to to get to this point? I think we had to go through a lot of bad pitches to people who don't know anything about what we do. And the reason I'm saying that is, as I was trying to explain what a wolf is to a bunch of people, it kind of felt to me like they don't really understand. When I talk with gamers, they immediately understand what we do, and that's great. But when I talk to people outside of gaming, they were like really trying to wrap around their heads on, wait a minute, so you're building a game? Oh, you have apps, so can I check out your product on my iPhone? You know, it was very difficult. And at some point, we've reached a scale where I thought that it's time to solve this problem. So we actually asked for help from an external company. That company is called Atreo. They're based in Israel as well. Really smart CEO, Kalmel, has been a great partner to this journey. And as we started thinking about the problem and how we solve it, we realized that we kind of need to define a category. And I think the reason is we understood that we're not just the modding platform, where being a modding platform is a part of what we do, but it does not capture the entire vision. And it was also really important for us to build a profession. So... I think one of the big changes that we're bringing into the modding world is over the past 12 months, we've helped third-party creators. Actually, in 2022, we've helped third-party creators earn over $160 million. And a lot of creators who work with us actually make a living, just like YouTubers make a living building YouTube videos or Twitch streamers make a living building Twitch streams. Or So, you know, we have a lot of folks building mods and apps and making a living doing so. So we figured that if we would go to an existing category, like a modding platform, it would not really capture what our vision really is. And as we looked at other categories, obviously game development, this is not game development, we realized that we kind of need to define a new category. And in that new category, imagine ourselves as the company that I guess provides uh, the most optimal solution for the customers. How long did that process take from when you started working with the agency until you, you know, had something that you were ready to publicly roll out and start publicly discussing? I think it was like nine to 12 months. Um, and we're usually a lot faster. 
one of our core values and companies on the hunt. And it really talks about the pace and the state of mind that you're at. And, but it was difficult. I mean, the back and forth and then the visual language, getting that right. So it took us a while before we were ready to announce. I think the, the category part was figured out probably maybe after three months, but you know, that included interviews that not necessarily we did, but the agency that we worked with did with some of the folks that we work with, with our customers, like the app developers and the modders. So, you know, it's been a process to get to sharpening what the category is, but then it took us a bunch of time to be ready to announce it to the world. Who did you involve in that process? Did you just pull like the head of marketing, head of sales and, and head of product? And it was the you know, elite team working on this or who else was involved in those workshops and, and the brainstorming and who did you, you know, really have yeah, leading that process? Basically, it was our VP of marketing back then or VP of growth and an advisor that ended up being our CMO. But back then he was an advisor. His name is uh, Shahar and myself. So the three of us took the lead as kind of the core team that works on this, just to make sure we're not stepping in each other's toes if there's too many people or, you know, there are too many cooks trying to kind of uh, create this dinner. I actually remember, by the way, in, in the agency contract, they literally told us, if you start bringing a lot of people to the table here, the process is going to take two years and it's not going to work out. It's never going to see light of day. So they warned us of not bringing too many people into the process. But back then, actually, product was uh, a bit on the outside. Obviously, a big stakeholder, but on the outside, but it was, it was mostly uh, marketing myself. And just to understand then, like the legacy category, it sounds like the legacy category is modding. I think so, yeah. When you think about just UGC and games in our space, the legacy category is modding. How big is the modding market? Depends how you define big. I think there's a ton of usage and there are a lot of creators. Just, you know, on our different products, we have over 160,000 creators that we work with. You know, and all their creations are being used by about 38 million monthly active gamers. So from that perspective, I would say the category is pretty big. You know, obviously there's Steam Workshop. There's, I mean, Roblox is not really modding, but there's now uh, UEFN and everything you can do in Fortnite creative. So I think the category is growing and it's becoming bigger and bigger. But, you know, today it's, it's quite big. I actually think that there is a point in the future and maybe it's not in a couple of years, maybe it's in a decade. And I think at that point, the vast majority of the engagement time spent by consumers is going to be built by third-party developers. So I actually think that, you know, people are going to spend more time playing mods and those kind of things compared to, you know, actual content developed by the game developers themselves. It's already the case in Minecraft, by the way. And it's already the case in GTA 5, I think, with by them. I think it's also the case, obviously, with Fortnite, and, you know, particularly since Team Sweeney has been public about some of those things, I believe he mentioned that more than 50% of the engagement time is on Fortnite creative. And now with UEFN, I think, you know, it's only going to grow. So it's already a trend that is happening, but I think it's going to be more and more dominant. However, in terms of revenue, it's a, it's a pretty small category. Uh, but, you know, this is what we're here uh, to fix. So, you know, for example, the Minecraft marketplace, I believe uh, five years in, They've announced uh, that they were doing something like half a billion dollars for creators in that time frame. I mentioned that we've done in a single year, 2022, 160 million. So if you aggregate that plus UEFN, uh, that is obviously growing. And, you know, Minecraft, it's still not a huge category, but I think it's going to grow over time. Is that your North Star metric is the dollar amount paid to creators? Yeah, that's our, I don't know if you read the, the Jim Collins 
books or traction mm-hmm. or but are you familiar with the term BHAG? Yep. Big Hairy Audacious Goal. Perfect. So yeah. So our BHAG is a billion dollars for creators. And we aim to do this by 2030. So this is our inspirational goal. We're uh, <laughs> you know, we're at 160 last year. This year is gonna be higher than that. Um, still don't know exactly what the amount's gonna be. But you know, I think we're trying towards that. And I always feel I need to apologize for having a a dollar figure as our company's North Star, but we realized that if in-game creators are making revenue, then they're probably experiencing engagement from consumers who are willing to pay money. So it's probably quality stuff. And if they're creating engagement and people are willing to pay money for it because there's quality, they can also make a living. So it's this one metric that captures everything we're about, which is, you know, tools and services for creators. And therefore it is uh, a dollar figure and uh, apology ended. <laughs> I can say there's no need to apologize for that. I, I can see how the context matters, right? If you were like a cybersecurity startup and your North Star metric was just only revenue, then I think it could yeah. come across a bit wrong. But in this case, as you mentioned there, you're helping these people create a living and provide for their families. So it's a, it's acceptable and it, it makes sense. And it's a very fair North Star metric. So I like it. Thank you. Were you ever tempted to just, you know, call it a modding platform? And in the early days, did you ever call it a modding platform? Like, were you ever, you know, pulled or did you feel like the market was trying to like pull you into these existing definitions? Yeah, totally. Like, you know, even when we're doing business development calls, a lot of folks are familiar with this. You call it like a legacy category. You know, for a lot of people, this is uh, a legacy that, you know, is living and breathing and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes when trying to explain what we do and the different solutions that we have, I feel like it's easier if we just explain, you know, what a modding platform does and what we're doing in this context. Uh, So sometimes the short-term value kind of contradicts the long-term value of really being stubborn on educating people for this new category we believe in. But again, at the same time, I'm constantly like on the fence on this one because for some games, you know, private service is the thing. And for some games, I don't know, take League of Legends, for example. League of Legends, is, you know, they don't care about modding for League of Legends. Oh my God, it's like unrelated. But they're happy to have, you know, apps and websites. So, you know, if as a company, we're a company that actually want to serve that creator category as well. Again, we go back to this question of how are we calling ourselves? So... I don't know. That, that hopefully this answers your question. I guess uh, we're kind of, for now, being opportunistic, which I don't know if it's the right call for the long term. And can you give us an idea of what an average creator looks like? And, and maybe there is no average creator, but maybe an average ideal creator that you want to, to bring to the platform and bring to the product. It's super interesting. Like I think on the private server space, the creator is sort of somewhat different compared to, you know, folks building apps for League of Legends or for the other games. I want to say it's quite diversified, but most of the creators are probably in their between, I'd say, mid-20s to mid-40s. They do have some professional experience. They're gamers and they're very passionate about a specific game, but because they're builders, they start a journey of creation at some point in the past. We just actually announced, it's not us that announced it, but uh, we participated in the announcement, the acquisition of uh, Porfessor. Porfessor is an app for League of Legends built by a single creator, and he had an amazing outcome. He sold his company for 50 million euros, and uh, 
if you're, you know, if you want more details, you're welcome. It's all public information. So it's all in the news and, and TechCrunch and VentureBeat and all that. But what people don't know is that he actually started his journey of developing gaming sites probably like 12 years ago or so, I think, in, in World of Warcraft or maybe other games. So just out of passion for the game and being a builder and having the ability to create, probably when he was in his mid-20s, he started this journey of, hey, I'm just going to build. I'm not going to worry about monetization. I'm not going to worry about whether I'm going to sell my company in a decade. I'm just going to focus on building something that I'm lacking inside a game. And then, you know, he iterated and iterated and iterated. And at some point, he quit his day job to do this full time. And then fast forward a decade, he has this amazing outcome for himself and he can continue doing it, but from a very secure position financially. So this is his story. We are working with folks who are well above 50. <laughs> so it's quite diversified. But I would say probably the majority is like, I would say, you know, mid-20s to like mid-40s. And what are you doing on your end to educate potential creators and, and to really plant the idea that they don't just need Overwolf, but they need to, you know, pursue this idea in general and you know, buy into this category in general? What are you doing to, you know, create category demand? So we're doing a bunch of things. I mean, the first thing we had to do is figure out what the category is and why it makes sense and then how to communicate that. Once we had that figured out, we started thinking about, you know, A, doing PR, B, working with game developers and doing hackathons and providing incentives for folks who might have a day job right now to kind of get their feet wet and start experimenting in creation. We're also providing funding. So uh, you mentioned that we've raised uh, over $150 million. From that amount, we've allocated $50 million for creator incentives. It means that we could do like a hackathon with cash rewards, or we can say, hey, here's a team that has really awesome potential, and we feel like they're gamers, they know their stuff, they have like execution capability, and then we would potentially give them like a grant so that they can start developing something that potentially may turn into something that they can make a living off of. What else? I think this is mostly, you know, in the conversation that we're having with game developers, obviously, we're sharing some of those success stories because I think if I'm putting myself in the shoes of a game developer, producing content is really expensive and it's not getting cheaper, even though, you know, we have more sophisticated tools like Gen AI and those kind of things. Still, it's hard to create high quality content and to maintain good live services. If I can, you know, outsource some of that work and even potentially the majority of that work to my community that are going to think about my game as if it was an engine and continuously build experiences around this game. And it's actually a pretty good idea that eventually if it sinks in and I'll start doing activities around that, you know, it helps us convey the message and, and educate. So I think it's a lot of things and, you know, pretty much these are probably the main strategies. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. You mentioned PR there. What impact has PR had in you know shaping this category and getting the market to begin to accept the category? I think the value of PR has a couple of points that are interesting. I think one of the most important things for me is for the in-game creators, if I'm 
seeing another in-game creator on Forbes, for example, a very good PR brand or very good PR asset. This kind of creates reality for me. And, you know, if that smart dude from Forbes said, hey, there's a new category called in-game creators. And, you know, here I am covering this uh, Minecraft creator that, you know, transitioned from working in McDonald's to instead of working McDonald's, doing modding for a living. So this kind of creates a sense of reality and it makes it from a pitch to something extremely tangible. And I think for me, this is one of the biggest values of PR. And then all the rest is obviously just education for folks who are not directly inside the category, but either close to the category or could be potential collaborators with us. For example, just earlier today, I had a call with this really nice entrepreneur who's building a platform for matchmaking of professionals in the games industry, like this marketplace that allows you to serve like LinkedIn, but more targeted towards the game industry that shows you which games you've shipped and what are your specific technical capabilities. So I think once, you know, there are things like PR that entrepreneurs are exposed to, you know, she could say to herself, hey, she could say to herself, hey, there's a new category here and might not be, you know, Unity game development. It's actually, you know, in-game creation or modding and those kind of things. So maybe I should reach out and open it up in my sort of LinkedIn marketplace. You know, I think that is the derivative value of PR, getting all those opportunities in front of us and then getting people to speak. I think the third cycle is probably things like investors and potentially if we ever wanted to go public at some point, educating the market that, you know, we're the leading in-game creation platform is probably a wise thing, especially if this is going to be a big category. Yeah. But I think going back to the first part of my answer, I think what it does to the in-game creators is the most important thing for me. I mean, think about it. Imagine someone being able to go to their mother and say, hey, here's a Forbes article about in-game creation. This is what I want to do when I grow up. You know, provides us further proof that this is tangible. And it's not just, you know, my kid wasting time playing computer games. It helps moms sleep a bit better at night, right? Yeah, the right. validation of Forbes. <laughs> I mean, it's a way to say that. What about conversations with investors as you've talked about this as a category creation play? Have you ever had investors, you know, push back on that and say, you know, category creation is expensive. It takes too long. You know, it's not something we want to be part of. Or what have those conversations been like? Because I interviewed quite a few VCs on the podcast and from them, it seems split. There's some who love backing category creation plays and there's some that say, you know, they understand it, but it's just not for them. They want safe bets that are just disrupting a legacy category. So what have those conversations been like for you? And how do you find investors that, you know, align with what you're trying to achieve? I feel like we're sort of disrupting an existing category or, you know, going to a legacy category and second, but bettering it or whatever verb comes out of this uh, phrase, I think, which made it easier for VCs to not think about us as like this new exotic category that, you know, I don't even know if it's going to have product market fit or any demand in the marketplace. It's more of a, oh, yeah, there's this thing that a bunch of people are doing. Nobody ever thought about this as a profession. Let's kind of, you know, build the guild for in-game creation and let's do that. Makes sense. Cool. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I don't think we, our gap with that significant. And I think, you know, once we had that, the pitch really resonated well with investors and that made our C and D rounds a lot more smooth <laughs> comparing to early days where I really struggled raising money. 
One of the big skills that I think all category creators have is, you know, the ability to tell a story and, you know, the discipline of being a, a storyteller. And from our conversation, you seem to be very gifted at storytelling. Did that come naturally for you? You know, when you were 10, were you a good storyteller? Like, where did you develop that skill set and how did you develop that skill set? For me, it became a problem that I had to solve because going back probably like 15 minutes ago in our conversation, when we've done our A round, I probably talked with 50, 60, 70, maybe even more investors. And I constantly heard no. And the story wasn't much different, like really, compared to our CMD round, which were a lot smoother. But I wasn't telling it right. And I mean, for me, I feel like I had all the details in my, in my head and I figured out what we should do. And, you know, back in 2014, we've done this thought leadership piece that talked about how modding is like the next thing in games and game developers should be more open to that. And I understood why some game developers were afraid of modding or not feeling comfortable with modding because they lack control. So, you know, here's a solution for safety and moderation and those kind of things. So I feel like I understood, but I was not able to communicate that outside. So, you know, I, I try to look for that person who's going to actually help me tell the story in a better way. And this is somehow through an introduction from one of our investors I met, uh, Shachal. I worked with him as an advisor for uh, a little bit over a year, I think, before he joined as a CMO. But to your question, I'm not a great storyteller. I'm more of a product person, engineer type, you know. But as an engineer, I like to solve problems. And when I saw that I have a really big storytelling problem, I thought, well, I should probably bring someone who can tell a good story and should probably work with an agency that can help us tell that good story. And ever since then, I'm, I'm basically repeating some of the things that other people have said, if that makes sense. Apart from the story, oh, it's more personal, but you know, apart from that, it's, it's mostly you know, how we thought about this as a team and how those, those people have really played a massive role in helping us tell the story. I'd love to talk a little bit also about the launch of the category. So from the interviews I've done, there's some founders who have, you know, this big public rollout and they make a bunch of noise from like the, the play bigger book, you know, they call it a lightning strike. And then others, it's a bit more quiet. They have, you know, their internal conversations to get people aligned and then they just slowly roll it out and don't make a lot of noise. What was the rollout and launch of the category like for you? Um, slowly don't make a lot of noise. I mean, we made a little bit of noise, but it's one of those things where I felt like it's going to kind of grow and build itself. And I remember Shacha was reaching out to me uh, some time ago and he's saying, oh, check this out. This journalist used the term in-game creator. Cool. You know, it's starting to work. I mean, I just felt like I couldn't really figure out how we can get in front of all of the relevant studios and all the people and say, hey, there's a new category. We're not, we're calling modding in-game creation. And by the way, these are the one, two, three reasons. But I think, you know, a lot of people would be like, okay, meh. Like, why would I even care? So I, I kind of figured like the category here is more sort of educational. It's more of a long-term thing. It's more of this journey of understanding that there's actually more to creating UGC around games than modding. First, there are different things you could do. Secondly, it's actually a profession. So, you know, it's in-game creators, it's not just modders who are doing it as a hobbyists. So yeah, <laughs> I think our approach was um, the slower path, which I think now we're starting to see the results for. What'd you do to get the entire team aligned around category creation and this idea that you're going to create a category? What did that look like just internally? You know, a lot of conversations and just saying, look, there's Theme Workshop, right? It's a great product used by a lot of creators, a lot of gamers. Why would we even bother, you know, doing something else? And then the answer is, 
we all were very driven because we believe we're building a new profession. And I think not a lot of people can say as they retire and look back on their careers, hey, I, I was actually part of building a new profession in the world. And that is a source of a lot of significance for us because, you know, we feel like we're changing the world for some people, you know, where this is how they provide for their families. And it's a, it's a huge right. It's like a, it's a great privilege to be able to do that. So from that perspective, a lot of conversation with this narrative, so people are like, okay, I get it. It makes sense. But then, of course, we had some opposition and we had to have conversations on, so, you know, why is this not modding or why is this not something else? But, you know, we, we ended up, uh, I guess, convincing everybody that that's probably the right way to go. And uh, we were pretty, like, consistent with it. And obviously, people connected the significant part of our journey. And, you know, so we figured out to cross that bridge. Are there any critics of this new category? You know, like, does anyone who's in the industry just look at this and be like, oh, it's just a fancy modding platform or you know, any, any pushback on the category from people in the industry? I want to say that I'm sure there is, but I don't recall hearing about it or being involved personally in a conversation that was critical towards the category. But like anything, I'm sure there are people who think it's, you know, not interesting or whatever. From the category creation process so far, what would you say is the number one lesson that you've learned working to create a category? I think I want to say that I want to talk about the number one thing that I felt. And what I felt was that all of a sudden everything picks. And if previously there was a lot of friction in storytelling, now that we've created the category and we've sharpened our story, things felt tight and consistent. And it just improved everything tremendously the way we're explaining the company the way we're pitching it the way we're making decisions talking about ourselves even probably the way we're defining our b-hack you know it's all of a sudden becomes this easy exercise like if we're building the guild for in-game creators and the guild is actually a profession what's going to be the north star uh it's going to be the amount of people the value they create oh probably needs to be around the value so you know this is how we came up with uh our b-hack so i want to say this is probably the main thing it's extremely important for every entrepreneur listening to this, I think if you're experiencing some of the difficulties that I've experienced in the past, you know, maybe this is a solution for you. Obviously, I don't know what your business is, et cetera, but maybe this is a solution for you. If For me, it was a solution. And a final question. So you mentioned the BHAG there, a billion dollars by, I think you said 2030. What's it going to take for you to pull that off? You know, if there's like a, a few variables or factors that you need to just really nail and get right, what are those factors and variables? I think first off, really, really good execution. I think maybe I'm stating the obvious, but up until a year and a half ago, we were like 70 people. And let me tell you, that was way easier to manage compared to right now we're 156. And I think it's critical that our leadership team and our management layer in the company and me, it's critical that we would grow to sort of become what it takes to operate very effectively. And a company that's probably a little bit greater than what we are today, maybe 250, maybe 300. I don't think we're aiming towards being a lot higher than that with our headcount, because at the end of the day, we are building developer tools and there's only so many people that can be involved with that. But I think to reach that goal, we will need to scale and we'll need to have extraordinary execution. The other critical thing is just the teaming up with uh, the IP owners and the game developers. I feel like there's a huge momentum towards UGC in games and towards in-game creation. And we just want to make sure that this is not a passing trend. You know, in the games industry, we've seen a lot of those, right? 
So we just want to make sure that this really becomes not only this nice thing to have on the side for a lot of games, but actually a very core part of the strategy, very core part of the content strategy, very core part of the business model. And to make that happen, we, we would need to obviously do really, really good execution and uh, provide the comfort that our partners need to think about this as a central you know, thing to what they're building. I think if we did that, if we did those two things, maybe the third risk is how gamers are going to feel about supporting creators. I think right now we're seeing a, a shift in which people are more willingly subscribing to creators on Patreon and are more willingly buying content on Minecraft. But there's still a huge group of people that are basically saying, hey, money should be free. And you know, a lot of game developers that are saying, hey, money should be free. And we're happy to support these folks because I think at some point they may be open to it being a profession. But I think to make this sustainable and to really build an ecosystem out of in-game creation, you know, eco has to be a part of that and people need to make a living. So we have to figure out that part. So I think first off, we need to learn how to scale as a company and how to do like really awesome execution. Secondly, the IP owners need to be extremely excited about having in-game creation as part of their core strategy. And then thirdly, gamers need to be happy about supporting, you know, modders and not like just the game developers when they're buying DLC. And if all of that happens, I don't know if it's 2030, 2032, or whenever that timeline is, but I think we should be on track. You're going to get an email from me at January 1st, 2030, saying, hey, I'm just checking in. (laughs) Just checking in. Nice. I look forward to it. I'll definitely reply with the number and, you know, it's really good to aim high and and I think we're definitely aiming high, but I feel like there are a lot of good factors that could get us there. And, you know, the burden proof is on us. I love the vision and I, and I love everything that you're doing. And I really appreciate you taking the time. This was a, a really fun interview. I enjoyed our conversation a lot. And I know the audience is going to as well. Before we wrap up here, if any founders want to just follow along from a you know category creation perspective and a, a company building perspective, where should they go? So yeah, just check me out on LinkedIn, Yuri, U-R-I dot, sorry, Marchand. That's uh, the LinkedIn. And my email is simple. It's first name dot last name, Yuri dot Marchand at overwolf.com. Feel free. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time again. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot from you. And I know the audience is going to, too. So thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, you too.